This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, welcome back, Rick Goslin. I missed you last week. Where were you? Troy, where were you? Motown. I'm wedding, but did get to watch Alan Trammell's retirement ceremony on Sunday. Nice. Well, you have nice. A yeah. to get out of Texas heat in August. You go. Nice. That when he gave the Lou Whitaker speech, uh, didn't he say? Uh, yeah. yeah. On the stage, Kirk Gibson on the stage, Jack. Cool. On the stage, quite the quite the celebration. Very nice. Cool. Well, anyway, ni- nice to have you back. And while you're away, we nominated two Hall of Fame contributor candidates for the class of 2019, and not so surprisingly, we were Denver owner Pat Bolin and former Dallas executive Gil Brandt. So, Ronnie, how'd we do? Ah, to be fair. Uh, <laughs> I felt there were better. Why do we want to be fair? Yeah, why be fair? <laughs> you know, I, I did feel there were better candidates in both categories, but you know, it's easy for me to say. It's just my opinion. But uh, I would have favored someone like Bud Adams, without whom there'd have been no AFL and then no NFL as we know it, or Carol Rosenblum, who had the best winning percentage of any owner uh, until Bob Kraft and made the merger possible by agreeing to grab some cash to go to the AFC at a time when uh, that was a pretty naughty problem for Pete Rozelle. Um, and uh, as far as the personnel goes, you know, you guys know you've heard it before. I like Buckle Kilroy, Bill Nunn, and Joe Thomas all ahead of Gill. But, uh, uh, you know, no defense. it's not Gill's fault, but more guys have been given credit for inventing the Cowboys draft system than have been credited for the West Coast offense. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, but both these guys, have, it's fine. You know, Gill's certainly deserving, and, and, uh, and, you know, it's fine. Picking Bowen and Bryant was like picking Secretariat in the Belmont. That's where the smart money was. Headed. <laughs> yeah, you are right. right. That's right. Hey, does Goose get credit for the Dallas system and the scouting system? <laughs> I think he should. He has it down better than they did. Yeah, well. On me. <laughs> the Goose system. They should use the Goose system. They'd actually have some players there. As our listeners probably know, Pat Bowen is suffering from advanced Alzheimer's, so we wanted to find someone who could speak on his behalf, and that someone is TV executive... Dick Eversoll, who's been an outspoken advocate of Pat for years. We also have the aforementioned Gil Brandt, who built his career on a revolutionized scouting system, I think, and who becomes the second <laughs> Dallas nominee in three years. And then there's Hall of Fame voter Jeff Duncan from New Orleans to give us his take on the best Saints not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So we've got a lot to get to, but first we want to get to a commercial. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to break right now. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, um, guys, I've got a calendar on my desk that has a print of a well-known park or place in the United States attached to it each month. My wife gave it to me for Christmas. And, and this month, it's, it's Death Valley, California. Which is, Ron, what feels like you're in the Northeast, where it was in the low to mid-90s Tuesday and Wednesday. I swear I feel as if I I just entered the crazy world of Arthur Brown. Um, It's not so much the heat as it is the humidity, which is kind of like, I guess, the Oakland A's. I mean, it just won't go away. Uh, Of course, Goose, I guess, (laughs) speaking to you, low to mid-90s is what you probably call cooling trend in Dallas, right? Yeah, try going 10 consecutive days in the hundreds like we did this month. A few years back, we had a string of 100-degree days in May. You want heat? I got heat for you. <laughs> Ron did 10 consecutive days of 100 on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. 
<laughs> That's a cooling trend on the golf course for me. Well, Goose, uh, speaking of a warming trend, your guy, uh, that would be Dallas owner Jerry Jones, is at it again. Uh, this time turning up the heat and humidity on the 18-game schedule. And he said, as most people know, he'd support going from 16 to 18 regular season games and reducing the preseason schedule from four to two, arguing, of course, that it would be a windfall for players with an extra, I think he said, $1 billion in it for them. Anyway, um, not sure why he chose now to address the subject, Goose. It's been kicked around for years, but he did. you want to enlighten us? Yeah, because the Cowboys are not playing their regulars this month. You know, it's tough to ask your season ticket base to pay the same price for games in August when you aren't going to see Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, and Sean Lee on the field as you ask them to pay in December when those Pro Bowl vets are on the field trying to win games division titles. No one is trying to win anything in August. The preseason is a fraud, and Jones knows it. So does the public. This was a business comment by Jones, not a football comment. But, Ron, here's what I don't get, and I am going to go to the football comment. Um, he said it could actually reduce injuries <laughs> or the number of severe injuries like concussions, and, and, and that, that makes no sense to me when you see an increasing number of teams not playing starters in preseason. So how are they going to go, and I'm talking about the players, and, and you're pretty close to the players and right. uh, the union. How are they going to go for something when they swap nothing for two more games that count? Yeah, they're not going to – I mean, they're, they're, they're going to fight them tooth and nail, I think, unless there's money involved, and which is if there's a big pile of money involved, then they usually cave and take the money and get their concussions and get their added injuries. I mean, look, it, uh, concussions were up 16% last year, even with all these changes. Uh, now you want to add two more for real games and take away two games where the, most of them are sitting over by those big blowers on the bench with towels around their head? I mean, <laughs> look, the, the, to, to say that it's going to reduce injuries is, you know, that's just – Fake news, as somebody Fake news. Said. But, but Ron, because the commissioner's never given up on backing this idea, he's, he's promoted again and again. You know the NFL's going to try to revisit this at the next CBA. But if they're going to get it, they're going to have to make some significant concessions to players. So what do you think that would be? Well, it always comes down to cash. I mean, you could buy the players, and the owners know that. Uh, and they seem to have developed uh, the uh, it, Ability to buy them on the cheap. <laughs> you know, they, they, yeah, right, players think right. they got a good deal, and then boom, I guess they didn't. Uh, so my guess is that's what they'll do. They'll offer them some, some, uh, uh, some money. Maybe they'll give it, offer them another point, but it'll be a point that, in a way that you know, tilts toward ownership. And look, the owners know they can squeeze TV for more. If they got two more real games, they're going to get paid more money. That's just uh, the nature of it. And yeah, right. they'll, they'll share that money, and that's the only way they can sell it. Ron, if, you, if you're D. Smith, would you give the NFL an 18-game schedule in exchange for taking the power to suspend out of the hands of commissioners and putting it in an independent committee? I wouldn't because I, I still believe strongly, and I know a lot of the union guys do quietly, although they won't say it, that 99.9% of the suspended guys, uh, you know, are, are guys that should be suspended. You know, it's the same. <laughs> it's the same crew of guys. You know, 90% of your guys never have a problem with this. Uh, and uh, if I was him, I would be pushing for more and more guarantees in those contracts. Right, right. You, know, you want this, then you're going to have to guarantee this. If you're a veteran a certain amount of years, then they got to have this kind of guarantee. Something that gets them uh, sure money in the second most dangerous sport uh, around next to boxing. Okay, we spoke briefly of the contributor selections. <laughs> yeah, you ever get hit in the head by Mike Tyson? <laughs> we spoke Those guys tap out, doesn't it? They quit. Quit us. <laughs> well, we spoke briefly. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. We talked about the contributors in the open segment and, um, and their owner, Pat Bowen of the Broncos, and former Cowboys exec Gil Brandt, uh, each of whom will be voted on as candidates for the class of 2019. Gooseman, would they have been your choices? 
Well, if anyone has been listening to our show over the last several months, they know the three favorites heading into August were Johnny Robinson as a senior, Bowling and Brandt as contributors. Those were the names that have been moving up in the queue in recent years, so it was their turn. So I'm not going to quibble with selections. Right. How about that? How about that? Well, I've, you know, uh, I do a bit. You know, I, I think there were better candidates, but but you know, I always feel bad when you say that because that that doesn't mean these guys aren't uh, uh, reasonable choices because they are reasonable choices. And, and in the case of uh, uh, you know, Gills, I think eighty sub odd years old, and how much more longer you're going to wait if you're going to put him in? Uh, and uh, obviously, Pat Bowen's uh, suffering uh, with, with Alzheimer's. Uh, so look, I, I get it. I don't have a real problem with it. You know, uh, uh, there's a list of contributors, as there are with seniors, that all deserve to get in there. And as long as we get them all in uh, in a fairly reasonable period of time, the order doesn't make that much difference to me. Hey, hey Ron, quick Bob here. Kraft. That's what he just asked me. He's in, he's in Foxborough. That's where he's. He called, hey, called me that same day and said, "What are you doing?" <laughs> it's not much. Yeah. You, you said, "I'm on um, your committee." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ron, uh, Pat becomes the third owner nominated among the eight contributor candidates since the category was created in 2014, uh, and we've only had one nominee. That'd be Paul Tagliabue, who didn't make the final cut. I've heard some critics complain that the category wasn't created to be an owner's category. There's supposed to be something else for guys with no recognition or little recognition, GM, scouts, player personnel, directors, officials. Where do you stand on that? If you can give me that answer in about 15 seconds because we're sure. going to state your case. Well, I completely agree with that. I, I, th- I put owners at the bottom of the pecking order other than the founding fathers of the, of the two leagues. Uh, I just think it's uh, football's about the players and about the talent and about the people coaching them. And those are the guys who I think belong in the Hall of Fame. Well, that means it's time for someone to make a case for a Hall of Fame candidate. And that someone is Rick Goslin here to talk about a special teams ace that he wrote about this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. Gooseman, the floor is yours. The Pro Football Hall of Fame has shown little regard for the contributions of Steve Tasker in Buffalo's unprecedented run of four consecutive Super Bowls in the 1990s. Tasker defined the term special teams ace, but he wasn't the only card in that deck. By turning its back on Tasker, the hall, the hall is also turning its back on Michael Bates and a slew of others who heightened the importance of kicking downs on Sunday afternoons. Tasker could block kicks, cover kicks, and return kicks. So could Bates, who was a first-team NFL All-Decade selection for the 1990s as a return specialist. The Seahawks claimed Bates with a sixth-round draft pick in 1992, but he had more on his mind that year than football. In All-America Sprinter at Arizona... Bates edged Carl Lewis for a final spot on the 1992 U.S. Olympic team in the 200 meters, then went to Barcelona and won a bronze medal in that event. Bates joined the Seahawks in 1993 and used his track speed as a gunner on the punt team to set a franchise record with 22 special teams tackles. Then in 1996 at Carolina, he again put his speed to use by leading the league in kickoff returns with a 30-yard average. He spent five seasons with the Panthers and went to five consecutive Pro Bowls. In addition to returning kicks for touchdowns, he also blocked three kicks. He set 12 franchise records during his five seasons with the Panthers, including career kickoff returns, career yards, and career average. He scored five touchdowns in his career, and all were speed-related. He scored on a kickoff return of 100 yards against Atlanta, 99 yards against Indianapolis, 95 yards against New Orleans, 93 against St. Louis, and 92 yards against Washington. He also caught a 40-yard touchdown pass on offense against the Raiders in 1994. But Bates left his speed on the field. There has been no speed involved in his Hall of Fame candidacy. He's he's been eligible now for 10 years without his name ever coming up. The Hall of Fame has started enshrining kickers and punters of late, 
it's time the Hall gave some consideration to special teams aces like Bates. Oh, I, I agree with you, Goose, but here's the question I've got for you. Can you stack these special teams aces for me? Tasker, Brian Mitchell, Bill Bates, and Michael Bates. Yeah, I'd, I'd go Tasker first because of the completeness of, his, completeness of his game. He could do everything you ask of him on special teams. Then I'd go Michael Bates because he was elite in two areas, coverage and returns. Then Mitchell, who returned kicks, also excelled as a, a holder. Then Bill Bates, who was strictly a cover guy. Okay, well, good luck with that, Goose, man. You just made a lot of people in Carolina happy. And we're going to make a lot of our sponsors happy right now by taking a break. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, before we get into where the seniors and contributors are headed next, and I'm not talking only about a vote, I want to address the clarification the league came up with uh, about a week ago, I guess, uh, regarding the new helmet rule with regard to tackling. Um, essentially, it said no foul would be called if there were an inadvertent lowering of the helmet, which I found was sort of interesting because um, I was at dinner that very night that they announced that. I was sitting alongside Hall of Fame GM Bill Polian, and, and we talked about it. And, and I asked him, you know, what's next with this rule? How do you fix it? And he said, you know, it's pretty easy. We just need to add the word inadvertent to erase the substantial gray area that's causing so much trouble. So, you know what, they did? And guess what? Surprise, surprise, calls were down last weekend. Well, the word inadvertent also is a convenient way to keep offensive players from ever getting penalized. You know, I've seen running backs and wide receivers both duck their heads before contract this preseason. No penalties called. It's just another means of stacking the deck against defensive players. Yeah, I, I know when I was talking to Bill, and, and then Bill was talking to the contributor committee that was there in Canton before we uh, actually got down to electing people. Uh, his point was pretty clear on this. He said, you know, all new proposals must have three foundations. He said, A, uh, a rule that's written cle- clearly, B, a rule that coaches can teach, and C, it's a rule that officials can officiate. Pretty simple. And because there was confusion about what was and, and was not, a legal hit. His point was that, well, coaches didn't know how to teach it, players didn't know how to practice it, and officials didn't know how to officiate it. Basically, it was a mess. Well, if the goal is to, to eliminate helmet contact, then you don't need the word inadvertent. I don't see the purpose of the rule, period. If it's blatant, eject the player. That'll get the mm-hmm. message across pretty quickly. I think most of those, those helmet, helmet contacts are inadvertent anyway. I think, mm-hmm. again, it's just another step in the over-officiating of what, what was once a great game. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And Oh, one, one other thing I want to mention, uh, since I'm on the Bill Polian subject here. Um, he said when he was involved with the competition committee, it would typically take something like this, and I'm talking about dramatic rule change, and, and first try it out in preseason games. Um, and, and then if that seemed to work, it would try it for one season. Um, and it would do that on a trial basis. But it would try it for preseason first. And he said maybe you try it for preseason again. But if it worked, then you try it for one season. And again, it would be a trial basis. And if that seemed to work, then you try it a second season, again, on a trial basis. But then and only then would it attempt to put it into law. And, and by contrast, Goose, as he mentioned, this was rolled out overnight and put into practice immediately. I mean, it had warts and all. I mean, it just put in practice immediately, and in so doing, the NFL created a problem, to me, far greater than how to handle, handle the national anthem needle downs. I mean, nobody seemed to know what was legal and what wasn't, and we suddenly had these hits where you're going, huh, what? 
Yeah, welcome to chaos. Just once, (laughs) just once, I'd love to see an off-season where there are no rule changes. Just leave the game alone. But I guess the competition committee needs to justify its existence. They they botched the catch rule, and now I'll call it the tackling rule because this is just another penalty designed to punish the defense and reward the offense. It's just there are too many thumbprints on what was once a great game. Yeah, okay. Well, let's move on now to um, the subject du jour, and that's the contributors and seniors and where they're going from here. Um, Under terms of the original proposal, which was in 2014, um, and it created a a contributor category, the idea was to be given five years. They're going to do five years of this, at which point the hall said it would, quote, reassess, unquote, the situation. Uh, Well, guess what? We, We just nominated our fifth class of contributors and our fifth class of seniors, which means the hall now is on the clock. Um, within one year or August 2019, that's again five years from day to start to finish of, of when they inaugurated this rule, uh, it must, quote, reassess, unquote, or come up with a plan for the next five or ten or how many years it deems appropriate for contributors and seniors. And, and last week on our website, Goose Talk of Fame Network, I, I rolled out an idea that would return seniors to two a year, give you two a year like it was before, reduce contributors to one a year and include coaches, and I mean all coaches, head coaches, assistant coaches, uh, coordinators, whatever, um, as contributors to make the category more inclusive. Um, so tell me, you've been doing this for a long time. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly what the Hall of Fame is going to do. I think that was the plan all along. There are maybe eight to ten worthy candidates left in the contributor pool as opposed to the 70, 80 worthy candidates in the senior pool. Mm-hmm. This contributor category was implemented to crack the door for off-the-field candidates. The Bobby Bethards, the Bill Polins, and the Ron Wolfs have since been rewarded. Now it's time to get back to the players. And you do that by going two seniors every year going forward. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and one other thing, Goose, when I was in Canton, it, it seemed to like be that there was um, some support for going back to not just the two seniors and, and reducing the contributors to one year, as you mentioned, um, but also they're kicking around an idea that would have a separate coaches category so they created a, a contributors category now they're talking about creating a separate coaches category and rotating it every other year with the contributors so you'd have let's say one coach nominated in one year then a contributor nominated the next much like you do with the seniors and the contributors now except it just be one and one and one and one um and i'll be honest with you i i don't really like it because i'm not sure i like having the idea of one coach mandated to come out every other year um I, I like it to be tough, as Ron has said before. I don't know if we're making it too easy. I, I'd rather have them included with the entire contributor class, so we just make it easy, two for one, one for the other. Um, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I feel the same way. You know, put the coaches in with the contributors. That's where they belong. If you set up a separate coaches category, you might as well set up a separate owners category. Yeah, yeah well. For two categories, players, non-players. Keep it as simple as possible. Absolutely. And you know what? Maybe they're going in that direction, too. I hope so. I hope <laughs> oh, so. God. Um, but over e- the competition committee. We'll have 13 committees. <laughs> Don't let them tackle this issue, all right? Head on. Someone will get flagged. Um, okay, Goose. Um, this now morphs into another discussion, one of which you're directly involved. And, and that's the senior category and what happens with a proposed 
amnesty class. I know they don't like that word, but an amnesty class to celebrate the league's 100th anniversary in 2020. Now, um, Hall of Fame President David Baker told us last week when we were there, it was under investigation and it could happen. He didn't say it would happen or it should happen. He just said could happen. What do you think the chances are? And if it were proposed, how many seniors would you like to see pulled out for that quote-unquote amnesty induction? Well, I definitely think we'll see some sort of 100th anniversary class. You know, I would love to see a cleanup class of 25 to 30 senior candidates. Mm -hmm. You know, I got a list of right now 98 senior worthy senior candidates in front of me. And taking Mm -hmm. 30, you still got, you know, 60 plus. But, uh, but Frank, I think we'll be lucky if we get 10 senior spots. But, hey, every, every little bit helps. Well, I know when I was talking to you last week, something resonated with me when I was writing this, and I, and I um, contacted you, and you wrote back, there are 66 all-decade players, including senior candidate Johnny Robinson, who are not, and I said, not, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So if you want to know who's got the toughest job in Canton, it's not the contributor committee. It's not the board of selectors every February. It's the senior committee. I mean, there's such a huge backlog of worthy and deserving players that Gusev have barely been addressed or never have been addressed. Yeah, most of these guys have never been discussed. And this pool swells by the year. Roger Craig, Bill mm-hmm. Fralick, and Joe Jacoby were all all-decade selectors who entered the senior pool this year. And the way the voting has gone of late, there could be a bunch of all-decade offensive linemen in our laps down the road. If we keep rushing in all these first ballot candidates with stats, yeah. we may have one day 66 all-decade offensive linemen in this. <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, right. Well, that's um, where we're headed, and you know it. Well, well, let's yeah, let's just say the hall goes for the amnesty idea. Um, what, if any, impact do you think it would have on the two seniors per year proposal? Well, I. It won't be a part of the class of 2020. It's going to be a separate mm-hmm. class. If they have it, it'll be a separate class. They'll do it either in, in sometime before the first weekend of August or sometime once the season starts. It'll it'll be a separate event. So I hope they keep the two senior candidates in the class of 2020 and then have the separate, separate amnesty class of the additional 10 to 15 seniors. Again, you you can't – there aren't enough spots – no matter how many they give us, it's not going to be enough. So I would hope that they keep the two in that class and then the 10 to 15 in the amnesty class. Okay. Um, and, and, Goose, before we sign off on this, do me a favor if you can. Please tell our listeners that whatever the Hall proposes is independent of the NFL. It is. I mean, it has a board of directors um, and that, or board of trustees, and that board of trustees makes decisions just as it did in 2014 when it created the contributor category. That doesn't mean the NFL can't try to influence. I mean, there are owners on that uh, board of trustees, and Commissioner Roger Goodell is on the board. But the final call, the final call rests with Ken. Yeah, if the owners had to say there would be two contributors every year until all 32 of the NFL owners have been tried. <laughs> no, so, no, no, this is, so this will be Canton's call, but there's some NFL money behind every decision. Yeah. But you have to understand, the game belongs to the nation, not just Canton. But the Canton Board of Directors will, will make the call because, frankly, they've got to, they've got to pay the bills. They've got to write the checks that uh, allow this amnesty class to happen. Okay, Goose. Bottom line here, what do you think happens uh, not only next year, you know, in August 2019, when they're going to revise the rules and, and reassess the situation, but what do you think 
ostensibly happens in 2020 when there can be an amnesty class of, of seniors? Well, I think there will definitely be an amnesty class, probably smaller than I'd like. But like I said earlier, every little bit helps. And and that class is, is how large would you make it? I mean, you talked about it earlier. Would you make it twenty, thirty? I mean, well, I'd love uh, to have 20, is, is there I a key number? Get half that, we'll be lucky. Okay, well, that makes your <laughs> makes your decision so difficult. But it still leaves you know. If we go back to two, um, at least that's better than the one every other year. And I think that's at least a step forward. Well, uh, speaking of seniors and contributors, we have 2019 contributor nominee Gil Brandt in the house. Yes, he is, and he's ready to join us right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we've been talking about the contributor nominees for the Pro Football Hall of Fame's class of 2019, and our next guest is one of them. The old Brandt was the original personnel director of the Cowboys, hired in October 1959, and he remained in that capacity for 30 years. Now, his drafts helped produce teams that would qualify for the playoffs 18 times, win 13 NFC East titles, appear in 12 NFC title games, and five Super Bowls, and win two Lombardi trophies. That's not all. From 1966 through 1985, the Cowboys had 20 consecutive winning seasons, with Gill drafting nine Hall of Famers, including three with selections after the sixth round. Bob Hayes, Rayfield Wright, and Roger Staubach. Gil Brandt, first of all, congratulations on your Hall of Fame nomination. And secondly, thanks well, for Clark, joining us again. Clark, thank you very much for having me. You know, it's a, it's a real honor and treat, uh, as far as I'm concerned, to be considered uh, for the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, I like to think the things we did uh, with a computer uh, starting in the early 60s, and uh, which kind of revolutionized uh, the way work is done in the National Football League, you know, both in personnel uh, and in game planning. And if you remember in the old days, uh, when you walked in uh, in the spring of the year, and guys would have the cutups hanging all over the wall and say, my gosh, what a stupid thing we did. We ran 49 near geo 45 times and it only gained 1.8 yards as opposed to the other side, 41 near geo, and it gained 7 yards of carry and we only uh, carried it when he ran it uh, three times. So it, it, it's been a lot of fun what we did. So, Gil, when did you stop drafting from Street and Smith? I'm sorry, Rick, I didn't hear you. When did you stop drafting from the magazine Street and Smith? <laughs> when did, well, you know, <laughs> you know, that's great. You know, last year uh, uh, the uh, draft was in Philadelphia, and uh, we went over to the Warwick Hotel where we drafted uh, that uh, particular year in in, uh, in 1960. In, I guess it was in December of 1960 because the Eagles in Green Bay had played in the championship game uh, on that Sunday before, and I think it's the last time in a championship game uh, that a team went without having an a penalty called on them, Philadelphia. Uh, but uh, when they came in there, and don't forget now, Street and Smith football, and also rolls of quarters, because in those days there was no uh, calling cards, and everybody had to bring rolls of quarters, so when they wanted to call pass.
Happy Lewis down at West Virginia and say, hey, can you recommend an offensive tackle? We need an offensive tackle. Or can you recommend a defensive back? You know, you had to deposit that 375, first of all, uh, and then rely on people uh, who you hope were given the right information. But it was, it was kind of interesting the way they drafted. And, you know, on several occasions, uh, we had players that were drafted three times before they were legal. And, and one time uh, we had Cal Rossi, who was drafted twice uh, in the first round by the Washington Redskins and was legal only one time. And then the second time he was drafted in the first round, he decided he didn't even want to play football. <laughs> well, Gil, as you know, I was back in Canton last week when you were nominated, and I'm not revealing any secrets here, but a big part of why you were nominated by the Contributor Committee was your personnel acumen and drafting and how the Cowboys, as you mentioned, revolutionized the scouting process. And uh, just for our readers, um, they should know and our listeners, um, they introduced the computer to scouting, as Gil mentioned. And that was huge because it forever changed how players were evaluated. So, Gil, I will ask you, how did the Cowboys come up with the idea of computerized scouting? Well, what happened is in 1961, Tex Schramm, uh, uh, or I should say in 1960, uh, Tex Schramm uh, got the job of being the president of the, of the Dallas franchise. And he was uh, working for CBS at the time in charge of sports programming, and he put the win- was in charge of putting the Winter Olympics on. And IBM uh, put a uh, uh, chip in the, in the, uh, in the ski uh, to find out how fast the, somebody was coming down the hill and what was his accumulative time and so forth. And so uh, he thought so much about it that when we came back uh, the next spring of 61, uh, we went to IBM to see if they could do that for us. And they said, yeah, that's a great idea. We're going to send you over to this company called SBC, Service Bureau Corporation, and we're going to let them uh, work this out for you. So we went over there and found a fellow by the name of Salam Kareem, who was a, uh, Salam Karishi, I should say, who was from India and really didn't know if a football was pumped or stuffed. Uh, But he was really great at mathematical equations. And so that was the start of it. Uh, We later on uh, got so good at it uh, that we formed our own company out on Page Mill Road in Palo Alto. And and one of the things that took place after football, uh, we also did three hockey teams, but also, uh, as an example, computerized the city of Cupertino's waterworks. And I'll tell you an interesting story about the computer in 1963 uh, we held up the draft for about five hours uh, because Mel Renfro had put his hand through a mirror uh, after he had heard about the president's assassination and so we took this time it was like five hours to send a doctor, Dr. Slocum, from Portland down to Eugene uh, to check his hand out, and uh, Vince Lombardi came by our table and he said, <laughs> what happened? Did your computer break down? He said, I've never liked those things anyway. And about three years later, he came to us and he said, you know, that's a pretty good idea. I'd be willing to come in with you. And we told him, well, the entry price is about $3 million. He said, I'm not that interested. <laughs> Gil, you drafted Staubach in the 10th round in 1964, even though he had a five-year military commitment uh, with Navy. You drafted Herschel Walker in the 5th round in 85, even though he had already signed a contract with the USFL. You drafted Owen Trophy winner Chad Hennings in the 11th round in 88, even though he also had a five-year military commitment to the Air Force. What was the thinking on those future selections? Well, you know, we, we drafted Staubach. It was probably about 2 o'clock in the morning. 
and we, we drafted right through the night that time. And, uh, and, you know, Tex would always say, who's the fastest guy? Who's the best guy left? And, and, and so forth. And right before that, and right before Bill Parcells was picked, uh, who was the fastest guy? I said, well, there's a guy that's a running back down at Florida A&M, Bob Hayes, that's pretty fast. He said, let's draft him. Uh, so we drafted Bob Hayes. A little while later, he said, who's the best guy left on the board, regardless of anything? I said, it's Staubach. So we drafted Staubach. And, you know, then uh, the interesting thing was how the computer uh, pulled Rayfield Wright out, who uh, Rayfield Wright was at Fort Valley State and, and was a basketball player, really, playing football. Uh, he was a safety on the football team. And because of the characteristics that he had and position specifics at that position, we drafted him, and we thought we were going to make a tight end out of him. And then we moved him from tight end to defensive end, and then finally back to offensive tackle all in the same year. And uh, he's in the Hall of Fame right now. Well, Gil, I want to ask you about a couple guys, or maybe three guys, you drafted and didn't sign. That's did not sign. You drafted Lou Hudson and Pat Riley. I, I, I really to... signed Lou Hudson. Uh, oh, you did? Okay. Yes. And, and, well, uh, but, but what happened, the, the St. Louis basketball team, Ben Kerner, uh, uh, begged me to, to, to release him. Uh, Pat Riley, uh, the reason we drafted Pat Riley was because Lee Riley, his brother, uh, was with, played with Coach uh, Landry with the, uh, with the uh, New York Giants. And uh, Pat was connected to New York. He was a all-state football player as well as a basketball player. And uh, he'll tell you right now, uh, that we almost convinced him to be a football player. But, you know, the year that uh, we uh, we played Pittsburgh in the Super Bowl, I think we had five players on our team that never played a game of college football. You know, all guys that we picked up through traits and characteristics. Well, we did mention Merv Rettenmund, and he played in the outfield on three World Series. Champions. Well, he's a great baseball player, but... Uh, we we uh, and and you know we had uh, one year and I think Rick will, uh, realized this one year the all Big Ten uh, baseball team uh, was Gibson and Leach and 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 then the guy we drafted Wade Manning uh, who we didn't draft we signed him as a free agent well both Leach and and Gibson were great football players Manning never played football uh, but we ended up signing Manning and he ended up playing in the league I think for five years uh, and while well, the other two became great baseball players. Gil, you drafted Bob Hayes in the seventh round of the 1964 draft, and Bill Parcells was drafted by the Detroit Lions in the very next pick. So did it come down to a coin flip whether to take the Olympic gold medalist Hayes or the Wichita State blocker Parcells? I, I talked to Parcells today uh, for about two hours, and, and I, I, every time I talk to Parcells, I, I get him. I said, well, Coach, I said, you know, we thought you were good, but we thought Hayes was just a little bit better, so we drafted him ahead of you. But I think it's the only time in history, Rick, that two Hall of Famers have been drafted back-to-back uh, when, when they went past the second round. Wow. Wow. Um, hey, Gil, I, I, I'm looking at your last draft, that's 89. You had the first overall pick, and you had to decide between Troy Aikman, who was a quarterback, and Tony Mandarich, who was an offensive tackle, and he went second to the Green Bay Packers. Right. I, Goose, tells, Goose tells me that there was some sentiment in the building to take Mandarich. So if you can, please tell our listeners and us. 
yeah, what was, went into the final decision uh, to take in, in the building. Uh, and, and I was fortunate enough that the head coach uh, at Michigan State, where uh, Madridge played, uh, made me come up there in the summer before his senior year because he was going to leave school. And, and I had to talk him into uh, uh, staying in school. And, you know, I found out some things about Tony that uh, uh, all of a sudden a guy that was a 195-pound offensive lineman in high, in high school was a 270-pound offensive lineman and ran about a, uh, five-tenths of a second faster uh, than he did in high school. So you knew something was, uh, something, somebody was on the juice, and that was one of the reasons we finally decided that we took Aikman instead of, uh, instead of Mandridge. Is Aikman's pick you've ever made? Oh, I, I tell you what, every pick I made is a great pick. I mean, I, I you know, <laughs> you know, you know, you, Clark, are a, a, a proud father of a young lady, and and you're always going to think your young lady is the cutest and the smartest. And and it, I feel she the is. same way about draft picks. You know, anybody that we've ever drafted, uh, you know, you have a special sentiment for those guys. And uh, you know, it, it's uh, uh, you know, I carried Calvin Hill's child, Grant Hill out of the hospital uh so how could you not like grant hill because it was dad calvin hill so they were all good ones yeah what were you doing in a hospital with the hills <laughs> well the hill, hill hill as smart as he was and as smart as she was you know she was uh she was hillary clinton's sweet mate and at wellesley and very smart but uh, they didn't have a place to live uh, yet they, they they had a child or were having a child and had this child grant and uh, and so we had to try to get him a place to live uh, after we brought him out of the hospital that day so it was uh, it was an interesting experience okay Gil we've got about a minute left inquiring minds want to know if and when you get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame are you going to have a party that's going to top Jerry's <laughs> I don't have seven million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but let me say this to you, Clark: you'll be invited. <laughs> well, I hope so. Uh, it should be one heck of a soiree, but it's going to be tough to to top Jerry's party. Wow, that was quite. You, you know, there's certain things you can't top. <laughs> That's right. Hey, like, Gil, thanks. You, you can't top Goslin's ability to evaluate players either. <laughs> You're right yeah. about that. And without a computer. Hey, Gil, yeah, thanks so right. much without for joining us. And best of luck. Best of luck with your Hall of hey, Fame. Hey, vote thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Bye, guys. You got it. That was former Dallas executive Gil Brandt. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, we're running out of time in the first half, so let's hear it, Shay. That's the two-minute warning. Yep, that's the signal that it's time for the two-minute drill. So, Gooseman, welcome back. Now you're on the clock. you got two-minute drill. Let's go. What's the over-under on the number of games rookie quarterback Josh Allen last behind that Buffalo offensive line? One half. <laughs> well, I think he's going to end up under 900 pounds of def- defenders. So many times that he will not go over eight games. <laughs> What's the over-under on the number of games Josh Gordon plays for the Browns this season? Three quarters. <laughs> That's a naughty question, as they say. Uh, that depends on the over/under on the amount of times they drug test him. The odds of his passing are under one. <laughs> Speaking of Browns, Tyrod Taylor or Baker Mayfield? 
Otto Graham. <laughs> Die Rod's my man. You guys know that. Mayfield makes Doug Flutie look like Yao Ming. <laughs> as long as we're on rookie quarterbacks, Sam Darnold or Teddy Bridgewater? That's an easy one. Darnold. New York can't wait for Sam Goody to come back. <laughs> it is an easy one for a different reason. Sam Darnold. Teddy Bridgewater has suffered enough. If Odell Beckham Jr. is worth $95 million, what's Antonio Brown worth? A view from Fort Pitt. (laughs) Uh, He talks less than he plays more, so I would say triple figures. Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells, or Bill Murray? Bill Shakespeare. (laughs) Good one. He played in Notre Dame. (laughs) Dollar Bill Parcells. I want to win and get paid. Jack Mason was not invited to the NFL Combine in 2015, but he became a walk-in starter at guard, and New England rewarded him this week with a $50 million contract. So what do the Patriots see in players that other teams miss? A simple goose, the ability to play football. They see how they fit in a system if not asked to do the things they can't do and shown how to do the things they can do. One more Patriots question. Why is Tom Brady so sensitive about his personal trainer, Alex Guerrero? Easy, because it's a sensitive issue. Easier. Guero is a quack and a Svengali with a rap sheet to prove it. Who wants to talk about that guy? The Chicago Bears have allowed a league high 90 points this preseason. Do they miss John Fox already? Nope, they miss Dick Butkus. Yes, they do. After going 14 and 34, Gooseman, the one person they don't miss is John Fox. That's the end of that. That's the end of the first half, but stay where you are. We have TV executive Dick Ebersall, Hall of Fame voter Jeff Duncan, and the tackling room line for the second half. So stay tuned. This is Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron, and we are the Talk of Fame Network. And by now, I think it's fair to say, guys, um, we're getting tired of figuring who's the next first ballot Hall of Famer. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, another's been added to the list with this week's candidate, none other than Goose Jason Witten. You got it. You were correct, sir. Yeah, that was NBC's Al Michaels, who last weekend anointed Jason Witten first ballot status. Now, um, Al Michaels is not a pro football Hall of Fame board of selectors, but he is someone, of course, who follows the game and probably figures, you know, well, if Jason Taylor can make first ballot, why can't Jason Witten? So, Ron, why can't he? <laughs> well, first off, because Jason Taylor never should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer, uh, in my opinion. Uh, do we have to compound a misdemeanor and turn it into a felony? I mean, there's no disrespect to the two Jasons. Uh, but if they're both first ballot Hall of Famers, they will have done more damage to the Hall of Fame than Jason Voorhees on Friday the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> no disrespect. You just disrespected them. <laughs> Learn that from Parcells. <laughs> yeah. I think the difficult part of this process is what looks like a first ballot Hall of Famer now may not be a first ballot Hall of Famer five years from now when Witten becomes eligible. Now, I remember when everyone said Art Monk was a first ballot Hall of Famer and he retired as the NFL's all-time leading receiver. He waited eight years for his bus. I remember when everyone said Shannon Sharp was a first ballot Hall of Famer when he retired as the all-time leading receiver among tight ends. He waited three years. What was Satchel Page's line? 
don't look back because someone may be gaining on you. That's <laughs> well, hey, Goose Man, I, I, I can't remember when I heard so many names, though, mentioned as first ballot Hall of Famers as there have been in the last five years. I mean, you've been doing this a long time. Once upon a time, it used to be okay just to make the Hall. Now you have to be first ballot. And most everyone, to me, most everyone is in the eyes of the people like Al Michaels. <laughs> I mean, they go, yeah, they're his first ballot. What happened? Well, the sport's so overexposed. That means more games on TV. The commentators, those games can justify the caliber of the broadcast by declaring participants in their games first ballot Hall of Famers. That's why. Yeah, I mean, we've elevated first ballot Hall of Fame to something that's far in excess of its meaning. I mean, it's become an insult now to be a second ballot Hall of Fame. You should, like, reject the jacket. You know, I mean, it's stupid. <laughs> Only first ballot Hall of Fame I know is the Goose Man. Nominated, you stood up, you said Goose, and you sat down. That was it. <laughs> well, guess what, guys? I have another first ballot choice. That's a break because that's where we're going right now. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, Gooseman, uh, I know you were in Canton two weeks ago. I was in Canton last week. So a couple of questions about the state of Ohio. Ron, you were in Canton two weeks ago, I too. I love Canton. Um, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's where you want to be in August. But um, those questions about Ohio. First, uh, what do you think about the three-game suspension that Ohio State coach Urban Meyer got? And before you answer, full disclosure, the Goose Man is a Michigan State grad, so take that for what you will. Now, Spartacus. There you go. Back to the question. Goose, uh, what do you think of the, su- the suspension? I thought it was light. Then I heard Meyer's press conference, and I thought the suspension was very, very light. Uh, the apology struck me as an inconvenience to him with little regard for the victim. So if you're scoring at home, it's big-time football one, higher education zero. Ron, would you have fired him? I think I would have, uh, and I certainly would have fired him uh, after that press conference. The amazing thing was that the report concludes that despite the fact they say he lied, they then say, but he didn't mean to lie. <laughs> what the hell are you he, He's had memory lapses in the past. Yeah. Yeah, so, so did my son when he was four, and he got a beating. You know, I mean, what are they talking about? <laughs> yeah, geez. Well, anyway, let's, let's move up the road. Not a real beating before I get in trouble. Just kind of a little, you know, stink eye. <laughs> Ron, let's move up the road to Cleveland where they lost your baggage, I think, right where you stayed yes, overnight or whatever. Um, it's also where Hugh Jackson's coming off a winless season and a 1-31 record the past two years. And where he just reprimanded defense coordinator Greg Williams for calling out rookie Denzel Ward, and he called him stupid. Yeah, stupid for a stackling <laughs> technique. You get hurt, you're stupid. Um, now, that in and of itself, to me, isn't, isn't that big a deal, except, well, I mean, except these are the Browns. And Greg Williams and offense coordinator Todd Haley already been at odds with uh, Todd taking exception to Williams giving players days off. It sounds, Gooseman, like the beginning of one dysfunctional family, or I guess another dysfunctional family in Cleveland. Oh, well, let's face it. All these coaches are on one-year contracts. I think new general manager John Dorsey wants to see what kind of talent he has on the field before figuring out what type of head coach he needs and wants. The next head coach, Dorsey's head coach, has a better chance to succeed that way. This is a young team, and those players will be a year older and a year better when the next head coach shows up in 2019. Okay, Goose, look into your crystal ball, Ouija board, or whatever you've got there in Jerry World, and tell me how many games do the Browns win this year? Now, frankly, there are enough good young pieces in place that I don't see the Bar- Browns that far off from being competitive. But that said, I think their ceiling is six wins this year and the floor is four. I don't think it will save any coaching jobs. 
Well, okay. Uh, then, then, Ron, that leads to my next question. Does Hugh Jackson coach this team next season? Uh, you know, Hugh's a charming guy. Uh, you know, even charmed Al Davis. So uh, maybe, you know, maybe uh, it's possible he could survive if they do okay. But i got to tell you guys one thing. If you watched any of those hard knock uh, uh, shows on HBO and you didn't come to the conclusion that Greg Williams is a lunatic, <laughs> then you are a lunatic. <laughs> I'm watching the NFL going, already. What? The NFL already has. I know, but you, when you actually see him, you're like, what? Yeah. Are yeah. you kidding right. me? And Hugh's just yeah. sitting there looking at him. I was like, no, man, you ain't talking to me like that, bro. I'm like, wow. <laughs> okay, let's move on from Ohio and two parts unknown. We end the preseason this week, and I think I speak for everyone, including Jerry Jones, when I say... Hallelujah. With some teams, uh, notably the Rams, keeping their starters out the entire preseason to avoid injuries. Goose, like it or loathe it? I loathe the entire concept of preseason. <laughs> <laughs> you need to charge your fans regular season prices. You need to give them a regular season product. Either reduce the cost of the games dramatically or unhitch them from season ticket packages. Now, right now, the season ticket holders have to buy a 10-game package, two preseason, eight regular season Cut out those two preseason games and let them stand on their own. There's nothing that scares an NFL owner, owner like an empty stadium. Wow, Ron, sounds like he's been talking to Jerry. What do you think about the preseason here? Uh, well, I, I, I agree with Gooseman. I, I keep calling it the exhibition season. I've been getting yelled at by yeah, the NFL right, for right, 45 right, years, you know. Uh, right. What an exhibition they're putting on, by the way. I haven't said that. Gooseman, if you think those owners are giving up that cash, they're not, no paying, they're not paying the players. <laughs> they're right. paying them like jump change and they're charging, uh, you know, November <laughs> oh, prices. Not happening, you know. <laughs> Better chance of the Royals making the playoffs than baseball. Um, it, it, it just seems like there are fewer and fewer starters, Ronnie, who are, who are seeing anything but you know something like brief action during the preseason, although I noticed the Patriots played their starters in the first half against the Eagles in the second week. But um, it's the same reason. I mean, coaches don't want to risk having their stars hurt. So how can the league continue to sell these games as part of, and Goose is right, season ticket plans, when all you're doing is rolling out cannon fodder, uh, and these guys whose purpose really is just to keep starters on the bench. Right, right. Keep them one one piece. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they can do it because, you know, uh, because the fans let them do it. You know, uh, the fans have to stop buying the season tickets first uh, and, and to sort of force a change, which isn't going to happen. And the owners know it isn't going to happen. And so they continue to, to do this farce, you know. But, but now with this other idea of talking about, uh, you know, Jones wants to go to 18 regular season games, uh, well, the safety issue, if in fact that's of interest, they're not playing in these preseason games anymore. So, or, you know, so the veterans aren't going to get hurt. But now you're going to play them in real games. Well, then they're going to get hurt yeah, right, even right, more. Yeah, so, yeah. I, mean, I, I think they're on the on the horns of a conundrum, as they say. A conundrum. Thank you, yeah. there, Ron. I like that um, word, conundrum. Gooseman, going to make you commissioner for a day. Congratulations. What do you do with the preseason? Well, I think you push for an eighteen-two split. One home game in the preseason. Nine home games regular season. Also on Ron, I, I thought, What's that? I, I thought I was talking to, to Goose. I, I, I'm sorry, is, that Jerry, is that Jerry Jones on the other Jerry? <laughs> Goose man, killing the players. Uh, Goose man. <laughs> They'll probably get it. Goose is probably right. They'll probably get it. added up to 20, 14 and 6, 16 and 4, 18 and 2. They're not going to give up the 10 home games. Right. Well, except, okay. except for the players, Goose, it doesn't add up to that because they don't, they're don't they not playing in these games anymore. Well, I, I agree. Let's, yeah. I agree with the players. Let's get rid of the preseason, go to 18 games, and then cut. Uh, what five percent or ten percent uh, of the money out of the pot? Give the players less money. Think they go for that? No, one no. one never knows. But I would doubt it. I would. Doubt so, it. We could always cut it out of the owners' end. How about that? <laughs> Nothing <laughs> happened. 
They well, can do it as a public this- service. You, I'm sure the government would give them a tax break. <laughs> There's no preseason for Dr. Data, a.k.a. our Rick Goslin, because every story matters with him. And today, Gooseman, that story is a perfect segue. Yes, Ron, I said segue for Ooh, a preseason nice. discussion. Is that something that you ride around on, a segue? <laughs> you stick it away. We all know the games don't count in August, but four teams have a chance to post perfect preseasons this summer. Arizona, Baltimore, Carolina, and Cincinnati. The Ravens have a chance to finish 5-0, and and the other three can all go 4-0. Only one team has finished a preseason 5-0 and since 2000, and that was the 2014 New York Giants. But the winning didn't carry over into the regular season. The G-Men finished 6-10 and that year. Four teams finished 4-0 last August. Baltimore, Cleveland, Denver, and Seattle, and not a one qualified for the playoffs. Worse, the winning ended for the Browns in August. They went on to become the only the second team to finish an NFL regular season 0-16. Detroit Lions were the first to finish 0-16 in 28, and ironically, they also were coming off a 4-0 preseason. The last team to use a perfect preseason as a springboard to an NFL title was the Seattle Seahawks in 2013. In the salary cap era, only three teams finished perfect in the preseason on the way to a Lombardi trophy. But 4-0 is certainly better than 0-4, even if the games don't count. In the Super Bowl era, only one team failed to win a game the preseason, and then went on to win an NFL championship, the 1982 Washington Redskins. This weekend, there are six teams trying to avoid winless preseasons, including the defending Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles, the Atlanta Falcons, Dallas Cowboys, Miami Dolphins, Seattle Seahawks, and Tennessee Titans. The most common preseason finish for Super Bowl champion is 3-1. The Jaguars, Packers, Patriots, Rams, Saints, Steelers, and Vikings, all contenders, all have a chance to finish 3-1 this August. Well, you know, Gooseman, uh, one question. Uh, is it important for teams like Cleveland uh, or any team that's been, you know, consistently losing, losing, losing? Do you think it's more important for them to just get some wins no matter against whom or, or at what point of the year? Or do you think it, it, it doesn't really help them? Lombardi believed that winning is a habit and losing is a habit. Lombardi was 42-8 and eight in the preseason with the Packers. I think there's something to that. Yeah, it makes sounds sense. like the mantra for today's team should be just lose, baby. <laughs> I think, Maybe I, think not. It I think it can carry over, especially a young team like Cleveland. I'd yeah. want to get some wins, get, give them the feeling of what it's like to win. Right. Yeah, well, I agree with it. Anyway, maybe preseason games don't matter for other teams, but our next guest does. That's all thing voter Jeff Duncan, who's going to give us a lowdown on the best New Orleans Saints, not in Canton. You listen to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, our next guest may be no saint, but he knows all about them. That's Jeff Duncan. He's a general sports columnist for the New Orleans Times, Picayune, and NOLA.com, and one of 48 voters on the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee. Now, Jeff was a member of the staff that won two Pulitzer Prizes for his coverage of Hurricane Katrina, and has been honored four times as the columnist of the year by the Louisiana Sports Writers Association. He's also the author of two books on the Saints. That would be Tales from the Saints Sideline and From Bags to Riches. Wow, that sounds like it could be a Cleveland Browns book someday. All of which makes him the perfect individual to tell us who the most deserving Saints not yet in the Pro Football Hall of Fame are. Hey Jeff, thanks for joining us and welcome back. 
My pleasure to be on, guys. Thanks for having me back, as always. Okay, Jeff, let's cut to the quick here. Um, who's your choice for the most deserving Saint not in Canton? And I'm going to say excluding right now at the top here, present players like a Drew Brees. But who's your choice for the most deserving Saint not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Well, I think the guy that stands out, he's been on the ballot a few times, is Sam Mills, a great linebacker, um, you know, captain of those great Dome Patrol defenses uh, in the 80s, a guy that was a a dominant force. um, um, To this day, Jim Mora calls him the best football player he's ever coached uh, any position. And, uh, you know, those defenses guys got overshadowed because they – they were at the same era of those great 49ers teams, the dynasty of Bill Walsh and Joe Montana. The Saints had the misfortune of bad timing because I think those teams were good enough to get to the Super Bowl, but um, got overshadowed, never could get over the hump against those 49ers teams. But Sam Mills was the captain of a defense that uh, you know was arguably one of the best ever. Of course, the only linebacker core to send all four starters to the Pro Bowl. I don't know if that'll ever be done again. And one of those guys, Ricky Jackson, is in the Hall of Fame, and he will tell you to this day that he, that uh, Sam Mills, he thinks, belongs in. So is, do you think that uh, Mills is as worthy a candidate as Jackson, you personally? I think for all the off-the-field, you know, the intangibles, all the things that uh, go into being a great football player, he was a team captain, uh, he, not just uh, in New Orleans, guys, but, I mean, he was a great player in Carolina. I mean, there's a statue of Sam Mills outside of the stadium in Carolina. He impacted two franchises, uh, you know, greatly and uh, was the captain of those defenses and really kind of a coach on the field for uh, the, for the defense. And um, those those teams did not have great offenses and that was their, you know, undoing uh, when they played the 49ers. But Sam Mills, um, you know, was just a, he was just a dominant player. I mean, led the team in tackles every year and just was never out of place. Talking about a guy that maxed out every ounce of talent that he had. I mean, he, he's a coach's dream. Every coach I talk to uh, just cannot say enough good things about Sam Mills. Hey, Jeff, I'm going to ask you about another member of that Dome Patrol and another member of that linebacker group. Um, that's Pat Swilling. I mean, you talk about Ricky Jackson, you talk about Mills, but Pat Swilling, he's 24th all-time in sacks and was Defensive Player of the Year in 1991. What about him? I mean, is he a guy who's in the Hall of Very Good, or is he a possibility that you could see getting Hall of Fame consideration? I, I think he would be a Hall of a Very Good. I really do, just being honest. Uh, Pat Swilling had some dominant years, uh, but he was really much a situational player, a situational pass rusher. I don't think he was a complete player uh, that, say, a Sam Mills was. But talking about guys that could bend the edge, could get around the edge to the quarterback, I mean, there were very few that could do it better than he did back when he was in his prime. And uh, Pat Swilling certainly... um, Certainly is worthy of consideration. So certainly worthy of being a finalist, I think, because uh, he, as you said, defensive player of the year. That's very difficult to do, and he was a force for those great, great Saints defenses in the '80s and, and early '90s, and, and also had some good years after that. Yeah, Leroy Glover once led league in sacks, and that's very unusual for a defensive tackle. He was a, on the all-decade team for the 2000s as a defensive tackle. Is he worthy? 
I, I think he's worthy of being considered. I don't know if he's worthy of getting in the Hall of Fame. I covered Leroy Glover that year, uh, and it was in 2000 when he was, uh, I think, the Defensive Player of the Year, one of the uh, finalists for Defensive Player of the Year. And I haven't seen the defensive tackle have a year like that, uh, at least as far as I covered. He's very similar to John Randall in Minnesota, just uh, unblockable along the interior. And uh, Leroy Glover, you know, wasn't really even on the ballot to begin with. I don't know if I failed in that regard, guys, but uh, I got him on there, and uh, I'm pleased to see that he's getting consideration because uh, he was good for a number of teams, not just the Saints, but also had some fine years with the Rams and also before that, uh, I mean, also as well with the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, you know, it's funny, just to follow up on that, we had him on the show, Goose, what, about two years ago because we were doing the best guys never considered, you know, for the ballot, and and my question to him then, and our question to him then, was how does an all-decade player and an all-decade player at defensive tackle not get on the ballot? I mean, I just don't get that. And yet we've had some guys who've slipped through the cracks. I think Leslie O'Neill was somebody who, who didn't yep. make it. Um, and, um, and yet you look at Leslie O'Neill, he has as many sacks as Lawrence Taylor. He wasn't on the ballot until somebody said something. So how does a guy like Leroy Glover not even get on the preliminary back ballot? Forget about being a semifinalist or a finalist. He's not even in the, in the top 100 or 95 or whatever is annually. Yeah, no, and look, that team in 2000 that Leroy Glover was on, 66 sacks. I mean, Glover had 17, Joe Johnson had 12, Darren Howard had 11. You just don't see that anymore. I don't know if we'll ever see those kind of sack numbers. As you all know, uh, the ball comes out so quick now. Offensive coordinators are so uh, hell-bent on not taking sacks, quarterbacks getting rid of the ball, recognizing pressures. Uh, You just don't see 66 sacks by a team very often anymore. I don't know if we'll ever see three double-digit guys on one team like that, that that great Saints defense. You know, with the contributor committee, a lot of owners and all being considered, is, is Tom Benson a guy that, that should be considered as a contributor? Well, I tell you, there's something to be said for what he was able to do after Hurricane Katrina. Now, uh, you know, during the storm, uh, he deserves some criticism, and I was I heavily criticized him for how everything played out during the storm. But once he made up his mind to come back here, and I think there was a, some some prodding from the league and his fellow owners, but once Tom Benson got back to New Orleans and resurrected this franchise, I mean, it is better than it's ever been, considering the circumstances they had to overcome, uh, the small market that it was even before Katrina, and the you know just the unprecedented nature of that 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 storm and crisis. Uh, yeah, I think you definitely have to consider him um, heavily for what he was able to do. I think he's kind of put together a model of sorts for small market teams uh, and, and able to change a culture. I mean, you all know this. I mean, it's so difficult in any pro sport to turn around a culture the way the Saints used to be. They were the laughing stocks of the NFL, kind of the lovable losers, you know, the Chicago old Chicago Cubs. They were always in the blooper reels, uh, never really taken seriously. And I'll say this about Tom Benson, and, and I think you all can appreciate this. Since he took over the team in 1985, his ownership, they've only had uh, two seasons with below seven and nine. I mean, that's pretty remarkable if you think about it. I mean, they've been competitive. They haven't always won, but they also haven't had those bottom-out seasons. And one of those 
uh, seasons where they weren't seven and nine or better was the Katrina season when the team was forced to be vagabonds and traveling all over the uh, country to play home games. Uh, that's almost an outlier. Otherwise, uh, since 2000, the worst they've been uh, is seven and nine. And so you're, you're always competitive, and that's very difficult to do, I think, in this salary cap era, uh, the free agency era, uh, where the playing field is leveled uh, once you start to get you know a good season like the Saints have had here recently. I would say, Jeff, the, the problem he's going to have is um, there are at least a couple of owners ahead of him. Robert Kraft is one um, who's considered for the contributor uh, category. Another one is, is um, Bud Adams, and certainly Robert Kraft turned around a franchise and has had extraordinary success, albeit yes. with a, a Hall of Fame coach and a Hall of Fame quarterback. But um, And then Bud Adams goes back to the uh, you know origins of the AFL, so that's going to be tough, but th- that's a tough hill to climb. Um, and that said, I think you can make a convincing candidate uh, – a convincing um, argument for him as a candidate because I think your point about Katrina and what he did with the franchise that I, I was governing the 49ers in that in the, in the 90s and, and and it was around him in the late 80s and I remember what the the Saints were and uh, and then how they came back and and became such a force but you're right I mean he resurrected a franchise that was um, sorry to be honest with you at one point yeah look the the hiring of Sean Payton. And then that front office, along with Peyton, going out and making a bold move to get Drew Brees, arguably the best free agent signing in the history of the NFL, uh, yeah, changed the franchise and, and has ushered in an era of unprecedented success. And, and not just that, but I think respect. I mean, they, they finally respected here. They're more high profile. They're kind of a feature team on Monday Night Football. And one thing that I think, uh, and you have to credit Benson for doing it, ultimately it's his team, but I really believe this offense, guys, uh, doesn't get recognized for being what it is. And I think you can make a strong argument that the Peyton Breeze offense is the greatest in the history of the NFL. I mean, it's going to break every number. They've done it for longer uh, than any other offense. You know, the great, you know, the greatest show on turf, the Montana uh, Walsh offenses, obviously those great Chargers offenses there, Coriel. But none of them did it as long as this offense has been doing it now, going on 13 years. Yeah, I, I, I would say slow down. I saw that Eric Oriel team. I thought that were they were pretty good. I'm, I'm also old enough to have seen United's play. Hey, Jeff, thanks so much for the time, and see you down the road. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. You got it. That was Hall of Fame voter Jeff Duncan from New Orleans. Up next, CV executive Dick Ebersol. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as you know, uh, Denver owner Pat Bolin is a finalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame's Class of 2019, and he's a finalist as a contributor candidate. But he's a finalist after years of support and campaigning by longtime TV executive Dick Ebersol, who's the former president of NBC Sports, now the senior advisor for NBC Universal Sports and Olympics, and who is a Hall of Famer himself as a member of the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame and the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. Bottom line here, Dick Ebersol is one of the most powerful and influential figures in all of sports, and he's here today to talk about Pat Bolin and why he believes he should be in Canton. Dick, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Clark. Thank you very much. 
Dick, a lot of people think Pat Bowen is a candidate for the Pro Football Hall because his Broncos won a lot of games. But you and I and Rick Goslin know it's more than that. If you can, please tell our listeners why you're such a passionate supporter of Pat and why it transcends winning and losing on the field. Well, there are two things that he was involved in and led that I think changed pro football forever in the last 25 years. One, I take people back to the NFL negotiations with the television networks back in late 93. The contract was about to run out. Uh, There had been earlier that year an attempt to help the networks who were under great strain. There had been a financial collapse in our country in 91 and 92, and the networks wanted relief from their very expensive NFL contracts. Relief not in giving up games, but maybe having to pay less. And the television committee at the time was chaired by Art Mudell, who owned the Browns, and uh, and Commissioner Tagliabue. (laughs) And uh, they, after meeting with all the various networks who were partners, plus ESPN, uh, came back and said, listen, we can't give you any relief in cash, but here's how we can help you out. We'll give you the 1994 season for the same dollars you're now going to pay for the 93 season or are paying for the 93 season. And we all were very appreciative and said yes to that because that meant another year, but it would be without an escalation in the rights. At that point in time, unbeknownst to us, two relatively new owners, Jerry Jones and Pat Bowen, knew in the fact that it was like in the last 10 years, jumped up and basically said, wait a minute, we bought into the NFL because we think it's the best single entity in all of sports and all of entertainment. And that was the first time I had ever started to hear that from NFL owners, but Pat and Jerry believed that fervently. And so they led a a charge to have the Modell compromise annulled, canceled, no chance. And they succeeded overwhelmingly. And at that point in time, Modell, who'd been the head of the television relations between the league and the television networks for three decades, stepped aside. And Commissioner Tagliabu gave the chairmanship to Jerry, I'm sorry, to uh, Pat and Jerry. And the two of them immediately uh, jumped into it with all of us. And by early that fall, they had explained to us that we weren't going to get any kind of a reduction going forward. In fact, we were going to pay a healthy increase. And there was somebody else there. And we all kind of looked at each other. We were soon to find out that that somebody else was Rupert Murdoch and Fox. And within a matter of weeks, it was also laid out to us that Murdoch was willing to spend what was then the unbelievable amount of $400 million a year. And he would take either the NFC rights, which were then held by CBS, as they had been for decades, or $400 million for the AFC, which those rights had been held by NBC for 30 or 40 years. And we were told we had, I think, a couple of days to come back. I went back to NBC, GE, who owned NBC at the time, and said, I honestly think these guys are totally serious. This is not a time to uh, dither. I think whoever goes back and says that they're willing to pay more will get to stay in the game. And the bosses looked at me and said, you're absolutely certain of this. I said, yes, I'm so certain of this that I honestly believe we'll be out of football in a matter of days after next season for at least four years or more. And uh, they said, okay, we'll go back and see what you can do. And I went back within a day, actually, and offered uh, an increase on what we were paying at the time, which my recollection is it was in the 200s of millions of dollars a year for the lesser-rated AFC. And that we were more than 
happy to give them a healthy increase, which I think was about $50 million a year. Absolutely stultifying at the time. It seems like a bargain today. And uh, they accepted that because they said whoever came back first would, would get to save whatever they'd laid the money down on. So they then told Rupert that he was going to get the NFC and then called CBS and said, you're out. Well, CBS went crazy and uh, said, how can you do this? And how much is NBC paying? And they told him and they said, well, we'll top that by $75 million a year. And Pat and Jerry and Paul Tagliabue all said, we gave our word that whoever came back first, we would pay this. And that was really, that move was really led by Pat and by Jerry. And it changed the course of football because, A, they had worked hard to prepare Fox to be ready to come into football. That hadn't happened by chance. Yes, Murdoch wanted in, but they didn't even have a sports division at that point. They had no sports announcers. They had no producers. And there were Jerry and Pat helping them put all that together. Now, Jerry, as Rick knows, has said in the last year or two that he was the brawn and Pat was the brains. Whatever. Those two guys pulled that off together, and I felt it was only right this time around, now that Jerry was in the Fall Hall of Fame, that Pat had come so close, really deserved to be in. But I had further reason, and that was, in 2003, I just became filled with a dream to do a whole new thing for pro football in primetime, and that was to get the rights to primetime NFL football, get them off of Monday night, and put them on Sunday night. And very few people, in fact, only one at the time, Pat, bought that that would work. And the reason I thought it would work was, number one, if it sounded like it was one of the better games of the day, the old ESPN Sunday Night Football series had had really lousy games and very few between teams that really mattered. Monday Night Football, for that matter, did not have many great games. In fact, in the last six years of of its existence, they only had one game between two winning teams in the last six weeks of the season over six years. So out of 36 games in prime time in the key latter weeks of November and all of December, they had lousy attractions. So I had a whole scheduling formula that I wanted to work out with the league if they would let me have Sunday night football. The resistance and a few other owners I talked to at the time was, we don't think three national games on Sunday, you know, early one o'clock, four o'clock games, and they'll come in with a really strong primetime game at eight o'clock. I said, guys, you're forgetting Sunday night's the most watched night of the week. And even if you only get a quarter of the audience, you'll be the highest rated show in sports history, weekly show in sports history. And you'll probably be the number one show in all of sports television. Well, the only person who bought that 100% was Pat. And the reason I know that was I was in his office on November 21st, no, November 22nd, 2004. And I laid out a few other things as to who the talent would be. It would be Costas in the pregame show with Collinsworth. It would be, I would get Madden. My dear friend had always said that if I ever got back into football, he would come. He would always be a free agent at the time contracts changed and he would come to us. And I'd known Al since we were both kids. So I laid all this out and Pat said, you got my vote. I went to California for Thanksgiving. And on the last day of that Thanksgiving uh, weekend, I was involved in a plane crash in Colorado. And uh, four were killed among the four, my youngest son. And I was really badly injured. And I basically disappeared for several months to be nursed back to health. My body was so badly broken. And finally, after about two months, one night, I picked up the phone. My family was downstairs. I was living upstairs with my family home in a hospital bed. But I had the use of the phone, and for the first time, I was interested in work after two months, and I called Pat. And after the, the two of us got done crying over Teddy, he said, I have one more vote. 
And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I've never given up on this idea. I think it's great. And Paul now thinks it's great. Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner, and really thinks it's something that everybody should get behind. So as soon as you feel up to it, call him, walk him through it. And it may take two months, but we will make sure this happens. And so that's why I have for years referred to to Pat as the father of of uh, Sunday Night Football because it was his vision, the first power with vision to embrace that this thing really could be something special, which it has proven to be. Now you might say, well, what what did this do to change the course of football? Well, the dealings in the late 90s finally made football, which was NFL football is the single biggest attraction in all of sports and entertainment. Even now when people say the ratings are off, the ratings are off a fraction compared to how much they're off in every other area of television. As you all know, the younger people in our country have disconnected from cable. They watch things like Netflix where there are no commercials. They watch uh, many shows they never had access to before in the Netflix and Amazons of the world. And it's a much tougher environment to succeed in. Well, Sunday Night Football has thrived in that environment. Football, total football, but most of all pro, has absolutely thrived in that environment because it still holds an audience. It may be off 10%, but 10% compared to all the other types of entertainment on television, which is off 20, 30, as much as 40%. So it's a myth that football is off in the ratings. And remember, guys, I've been retired seven years. I have no uh, desire to be a barker for or against television ratings of football. It's just the truth. I'm proud of the fact that between Pat Bowen and I and a few other people, out of it, we created a primetime giant. But all this started because of Pat and Jerry standing up back in the early 90s and saying, we're not going to accept less. And that made the networks then realize that they had to pay more for football than they'd ever thought possible. But more importantly, it brought in that Fox money. And the NFL has had money galore in a way it has never had before. And football has the resources to stay number one for a long time, although they do have some challenges now with the president and politics and so forth. But they aren't of popularity, nor are they of uh, financial need. Those problems don't exist for football anymore. Dick, as most people know, Pat has suffered from Alzheimer's and his wife, Annabelle, is in the early stages. How meaningful will this be for his family and friends that Pat's going to get his post? You mean how much would this mean to Pat? No, to, to, yeah, to the, whole, to the whole group, family, friends, Pat, Annabelle. Well, it means a tremendous amount to his children, to his wife, who you know Rick has announced in the last oh, four months that she too now has Alzheimer's. But she's, she's definitely still absolutely able to have a conversation. It's just those early signs of forgetfulness that a lot of us have. Um, she's beginning to have more and more, and it's been diagnosed as Alzheimer's. But as for his children... They're overjoyed, but Pat lives in their home, Rick. Uh, Their home, he has a whole section of the house. He has trained help with them, and he sees his family, much of them, every day. They go down, they talk to him. Does Pat really carry on a conversation? No, he doesn't, but he's very intent, seems to be listening, occasionally smiles. And um, I know, for example, when they won the Super Bowl in San Francisco three or four years ago, when they came back a little bit more than 24 hours with the trophy and brought it to him, he got totally caught up in the joy. Again, he's far enough advanced in his Alzheimer's. He can't articulate it, but you can see it. And I believe from what little I know of what happened 
last Thursday when they came to tell him, Joe Ellis, who runs the team now, and others since he's seen John Elway. Um, he's got a feeling of the joy, but does he know specifically what it is? No, he doesn't. I don't believe. Hey, Dick, we got to run, but uh, thanks so much for the time. And if and when Pat is elected to the Hall, we'll see you in Canada. So thank you guys very much. And, Clark, thanks for your vote. You got it. That was Dick Bye-bye. Ebersol. Up next, it's the Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Whoa, I just looked at the clock and realized we're almost out of time, so. That's the Two Minute Warning. Yep, that's the Two Minute Warning. Gooseman, take us home. How soon before one of the talking heads on television declares Seattle's rookie punter Michael Dixon a first ballot Hall of Famer? Uh, the minute he makes a one-handed touchdown catch. <laughs> As the great Baptist preachers would say, Gooseman, how long? Not long. <laughs> Baltimore Ravens have won 12 consecutive preseason games. Is John Harbaugh the greatest NFL coach in the month of August since Vince Lombardi? Yes, sirree. Uh, now the question goes, is there a preseason Hall of Fame? <laughs> I think of uh, John Harbaugh the way I think of Red Sox pitcher Chris Sale, Mr. August. <laughs> Speaking of the Ravens, Joe Flacco has the, been the NFL's most efficient passer this preseason with a rating of 141. So will first-round draft pick Lamar Jackson take a single snap for the Ravens this season? Yes, he will. Probably sooner rather than later. I think probably not, Gooseman, but that stat reaffirms my long-standing belief that stats, like politicians, lie more often than not. Undrafted record free agent Chris Warren leads the NFL in rushing this preseason. How many handoffs will he get this season in a backfield already stocked with veterans Marshawn Lynch, Doug Martin, and Jalen Richard? Three. <laughs> I don't know. Three. <laughs> I would say not enough to lead the NFL in rushing this regular season because he is a Lynch-Martin insurance policy right now. Get him blown up. John Gruden, John Elway, or John Lennon? The original John. John the Baptist. Ooh, I like them. Always take the best player. So I'm going with John Lennon. <laughs> Broncos, Broncos have signed Pac-Man Jones. Can a 35-year-old cornerback upgrade John Elway's defense? No, but he can upgrade Denver's police blotter. I would say yes, he can if they can keep him in 24-7 lockdown. The Cardinals have forced 16 turnovers in three preseason games. Has New Arizona coach and defensive guru Steve Wilkes assembled the greatest defense since the 85 Bears? Wait a minute, Goose, you're the guy who just told us preseason doesn't matter. So no! As you always say, Gooseman, latest is the greatest first ballot Hall of Fame defense, Arizona Cardinals. <laughs> Based on what you've seen this preseason, who will be the surprise team in 2018? Cleveland Indians. Cleveland Browns, if they win... Two games. They will be doubling their outcome. Who does that? Who will be the first defender ejected this season for a helmet hit? Not sure, but anybody who plays New England. That's easy. Fontes Burfecht comes to mind because Ndamukam <laughs> Su uses his feet, not his head. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Dick Ebersol, Gil Brent, and Jeff Duncan for joining us, Shay Raftis for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.